Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a Vivek Jha. He's a professor of nephrology and a James Martin Fellow at University of Oxford. We're going to be talking about um, the societal impact of kidney disease and you know what kidney disease is and, and all that. So, um, yeah, Vivek, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Rich, for inviting me. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work. What, what got you interested in kidney disease in the first place? Uh, that's an interesting question. It takes me back a long, long time. So I've been a nephrologist for more than 35 years now. Uh, I guess what got me interested in kidney disease is because it really is a microcosm of internal medicine uh, in that the people who have kidney diseases uh, suffer some consequence on almost all organ systems. And your full training as a physician is utilized in taking care of patients with kidney disease. Uh, the second thing that I noted was that there was a deep connection between kidney diseases and the various uh, social and economic uh, conditions of the populations who got these diseases, both in terms of how they present and also in terms of how they access treatment and what is their long-term outcomes. Mm. That was quite fascinating to me. So what, are, uh, so what is kidney disease for people that don't know? What happens uh, what symptoms does it cause and you know what's the name of the different diseases right so for those who don't know I, I which i guess will be very few people kidneys are two bean shaped organs uh, in our abdomen close to our back uh, they keep working 24/7 like most of our uh, organs uh, you know for that matter uh, their main function that we understand is that they filter our blood and get rid of all the excess toxins that the body produces as a result of its metabolic functions and the water uh, that we ingest and the body also produces uh, during uh, metabolic uh, processes. And those are eliminated. Kidney is uniquely able to adapt to, uh, you know, uh, determine how much uh, solute load or the filtrate load needs to be excreted. Uh, and if uh, for some reason the body produces high solute load, that might happen when someone is ill, has fever, uh, then uh, the kidney adapts to excrete the larger amount. And if the solute load decreases, for example, if someone is really sedentary, then the kidney takes care of that as well. Uh, the second thing which people notice much more is that the kidney very easily adapts also and determines how much water to lose. So if for some reason, if people don't have access to a lot of water or are, in, uh, are, are working or living in a place where there is a lot of heat and humidity, the kidney uh, concentrates urine by, and, and thereby preserves water, which we see uh, when our urine turns really deep yellow and we pass urine fewer times uh, in the course of a normal uh, day, etc. 
so that's mm. the function that we uh, that we really know about but the, then the kidney does a number of other things uh, not many people know that the kidney is the organ uh, that produces a hormone which determines the production of red blood cells right? uh, and that is really important because it is the red blood cells that carry oxygen to all parts of our body so if kidneys are diseased uh, uh, that hormone called erythropoietin Uh, is not produced in sufficient amounts, which leads to reduction in red blood cell production, which will reduce the oxygen carrying capacity of the blood, thereby reducing the ability of all our organs to function. It also wait, wait, produces. Wait, 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 wait. You mean is there a feedback system between the filtration of the kidney and how much red blood cells that our right. body so, needs? Right. So there is no direct collection with feedback, but when the kidneys get diseased, for example, uh, then the filtration function decreases. but also the uh, amount of functional kidney parenchyma that produces this hormone goes down so there will be a, a more or less parallel relationship between the loss of filtration function of the kidneys and the loss of uh, erythropoietin production leading to decrease in hemoglobin concentration of our body uh, but to hmm. your direct question is there a link between the filtration and hemoglobin per se in the form of feedback loop no there is nothing like that it's just the kidneys are the organs that do both the functions well how okay so if someone has anemia what will be happening in their kidneys for instance so anemia can be due to a number of reasons one of which is kidney disease so if someone has unexplained anemia uh, then you know one of the uh, investigations that the physician would uh, order is a function of the kidneys just to uh, make sure that if there is no other cause uh, then kidney function uh, you know should be eliminated abnormalities of the kidney should be eliminated as a possible cause for anemia in these individuals well yeah well, how would the kidney function cause someone to have anemia for instance like i said the kidney function directly does not cause anemia when the kidneys are functioning normally which means all the parenchymal cells in the kidney are present in normal numbers they are doing their normal job one of which is producing erythropoietin and so when the kidney becomes diseased the number of cells in the kidney decreases uh, and alongside that overall decrease in the number of cells the number of functional cells that produce erythropoietin also goes down so the overall production of erythropoietin is reduced in the body uh, which is a function of kidney disease hmm, okay so what are the most common i mean when someone has kidney disease i guess it's a broad term that can mean many things but um you know what are the most common manifestations of kidney disease yeah so like you said it's a broad term kidney disease can be of many types Uh, broadly we divide them into acute and chronic uh, acute kidney disease means that something is leading to a sudden reduction in the function of kidneys uh, it could be uh, exogenous insult or some in- internal dysfunction of the kidneys uh, for example dysfunction of the immune system of the body leading to some sort of kidney disease or an external insult like uh, uh, ingestion of a Uh, of a toxic uh, drug drugs that uh, that could have toxic effect on the kidneys administration of those drugs uh, which which can happen in people who are unwell because of other reasons and receive uh, drugs some of which are uh, nephrotoxic uh, so that's one reason so here we see an uh, rapid deterioration in the function of the kidneys uh, which in most instances will recover when we either take care of uh, the endogenous disease or remove the ex- exogenous insult that uh, the person receives the second type well, of what kidney- are the 
Yeah, well, well, one question. What, so what kinds of things uh, negatively impact kidney function to a large degree? Yeah, so we are talking about the acute kidney disease. So like I said, acute kidney disease can be due to an exogenous insult. For example, uh, kidneys require uh, uh, blood to pass through them in a you know, certain amount. Kidney is a highly vascular organ. If for some reason the, uh, the availability of blood or what we call blood volume is reduced, then the kidneys are not able to function normally and the cells will die. Uh, and that's one, one reason for acute kidney injury. This can happen, for example, if someone loses a lot of blood suddenly because of, uh, uh, because of some sort of injury or uh, because there is blood loss from any part of the body, like you know, from the gut or from, uh, from the respiratory tract, etc. Uh, this, this happens typically in, for example, battles and uh, following accidents and so on. Or if someone loses a lot of uh, fluid, uh, like having a massive diarrhea, uh, without uh, adequate uh, fluid replacement. Uh, that can lead to an acute reduction in the function of kidney. The second I said, are, uh, the second large group is are toxins. And there are there is a huge list of toxins. But the ones that we, we should, uh, as, as uh, uh, ordinary people, be most aware of are the various drugs that we often use. Uh, commonly used drugs can include some types of painkiller, a number of antibiotics which are used uh, for management of infections, and then there is a list of drugs uh, which the physicians will generally tell uh, patients about when uh, these drugs are prescribed. So these are the two broad uh, causes of acute kidney injury. But now something we haven't spoken about is chronic kidney disease. So chronic kidney disease is the type of disease which is more common than acute kidney injury. Uh, in this, the kidney function reduces slowly over a period of months to years. This is also due to certain underlying conditions. The most common underlying conditions are diabetes, high blood pressure, or presence of other vascular diseases like cardiovascular disease or other types of vascular abnormalities. People who have uh, certain genetic conditions which can cause kidney disease are also at increased risk of developing kidney disease, of course. Uh, but there are certain novel risk factors which are being identified uh, that might be uh, perhaps getting more important, um, you know, uh, now or in future, linked to, for example, climate change, air pollution in certain parts of the world, and so on. So these, uh, in this situation, the kidney disease, which progresses uh, insidiously and over a period of months, two years, is generally not reversible, although it can be, uh, uh, the rate of progression can be controlled with appropriate medical treatment, adherence to lifestyle measures, and uh, removal uh, from uh, those insults, for example, better control of good control of diabetes, appropriate control of blood pressure. Then there are certain drugs that can slow down the progression of kidney disease, use of those drugs. So that's, that's uh, an overall uh, description of the two large types of kidney disease. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. 
Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. No, we, we haven't. Uh, how, um, well, yeah, well, yeah. before we get there, um, how did the kidneys play a role in blood pressure regulation? That, that's, that's a very important question. So kidney is the main organ that controls what we call the volume status of the body. So the blood pressure is controlled by two or three main things. One is it is uh, determined by how the heart is functioning. If the heart function goes down, then the blood pressure will, will go down. Uh, the second uh, uh, function that determines uh, blood pressure is how, how compliant our blood vessels are because uh, our uh, blood flows through the vessels and the resilience of the blood vessel also determines blood pressure. The third uh, factor that determines blood pressure is the amount of salt and water in our body. Uh, so if our body, for some reason, has excess salt, our blood pressure will go up. Kidneys are the main organs that uh, are responsible for salt homeostasis. So uh, if we, for some reason, uh, take a lot of salt, the kidneys will know to excrete that excess salt. And similarly, when uh, salt is not accessible to us, the kidneys will conserve salt. And there could be, you know, in some instances, a failure of that function in the kidney. Uh, and then the body retains uh, excess salt, which is responsible for high blood pressure. Is then, there anything, anything else in terms of the filtration mechanisms of the kidney that will raise or lower the blood pressure by altering the composition of the blood, you know, flowing through our vessels? Yeah, so the filtration, uh, like I said, the filtration and excretory function uh, will alter the composition in the sense of uh, adding extra salt to our body, which can raise blood pressure. When the filtration function of the kidney diseases be uh, decreases because the kidney tissue is dying because of chronic kidney disease due to some reason or the other, uh, then, of course, that also leads to reduction in the ability of the kidneys to excrete that excess sodium and other solute load, uh, which also raises blood pressure. So uh, there are two mechanisms. One is simply by physical reduction in the number of filtering units uh, leading to accumulation of salt. And the second is functional uh, loss of ability of the kidneys to appropriately excrete salt uh, when it should, uh, as a result of which uh, you know inappropriate salt retention takes place, which alters the composition of the blood, raises blood pressure. There is also an interaction with a number of hormones that the kidney produces, uh, one of which is called renin. Uh, renin, is, of course, as the name implies, uh, comes out of kidneys, which also has a role, in, a role in blood pressure production. There are other hormones produced by other organs in the body, like um, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, which also control the blood vessel tone and uh, control salt retention through the kidneys. So it's a complex interplay between all of these factors. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And um, the kidneys, is, is that where the production of urine begins? It's a, a filtrate of the blood combined with other compounds? Correct. That's exactly right. So the kidney has, uh, 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 on an average, one kidney has about a million functioning units and these functioning units are called nephrons. So the way nephron function starts is by filtration of the blood. Uh, so the blood comes into the kidneys, it goes down these uh, million nephrons per kidney uh, through capillary system. The capillary system filters blood into these nephrons 
uh, in the initial part, which is called glomerulus. Uh, after getting filtered, the filtrate passes through uh, the next segment of the nephron, which is called the tubular segment. The tubular segment is, uh, is really complex and different segments of the tubule do different things. Uh, they, uh, they retain what needs to be retained by reabsorbing them. They allow things that don't need to be retained to pass through. Uh, they concentrate the, uh, the filtrate that comes in when uh, the body needs more water. They dilute uh, the filtrate when the body needs to uh, excrete excess water. And uh, after all of that has taken place, uh, the, the urine comes out through our excretory system down to the urinary bladder. And then, you know, when sufficient amount of urine collects in the urinary bladder, it sends a signal to our brain that we need to now go out and, and you know, pee. Uh, so that's how it uh, the process takes place. When when someone um, you know has serious diabetes and they actually end up having sugar in their urine, what's that process like? How does that happen? So, like I said, kidney is the ultimate organ that uh, maintains homeostasis. So, when our body, uh, for some reason, has excess sugar uh, in in a person with diabetes, for example, normal kidneys will know to excrete that extra sugar that accumulates in the body. So the kidney has a homeostatic mechanism that uh, normally would allow any blood sugar level over 180 to uh, lead to appearance of sugar in the urine. Normally, our uh, in, in healthy individuals, the urine doesn't contain any sugar because all the sugar that comes out in the filtrate is reabsorbed by the kidneys because the body needs them. However, in an individual with diabetes who already has a lot of sugar, uh, the kidneys will not absorb that excess sugar and it comes out in the urine. So that is why if you uh, do a urine test in these individuals, you will find sugar. Uh, so that's important. And that's one of the reasons why a person with diabetes uh, will pass urine multiple times because that excess sugar that is coming out in the urine will draw water along with it, uh, increasing the urine volume and, and making the person uh, go uh, and pass urine again and again. I guess early indicators of kidney problems are what, like albumin, in the urine or creatinine, like what, what, um, through your yeah. analysis, can we get a picture of what's happening with someone's kidneys and like what kinds of things are observed that tell you a problem's happening? Yes, indeed. That's, that's a critical public health message, uh, which is that early stages of the kidney disease do not produce any symptoms. So, uh, if, uh, you know, you or I, uh, want to know what are the symptoms I will get or what will I feel so that I know I have early stages of kidney disease. The answer is there would be none. And in this situation, the only way to find out whether or not an individual who is at high risk of kidney disease is actually developing it is by doing these two simple tests. Uh, one is for creatinine in the blood, and the second is for proteins in the urine. Uh, so by testing for creatinine in the blood, we are able to get an idea of the filtration uh, function of the kidneys uh, whether the kidneys are filtering blood adequately in sufficient volumes or not. And by looking for protein in the urine, we uh, try to assess the structural integrity of the filtration barrier of the kidneys, uh, one. And second, also uh, health of the kidneys in individuals who have diabetes or hypertension, because one of the early uh, signs of kidney damage is simply the appearance of protein in the urine, even before the filtration function goes down. So it's very important that people who are at high risk of developing kidney disease 
do periodic uh, urine albumin testing and serum creatinine testing. Yeah, why would um, protein appear in the urine? What is that telling you that the kidney is just not filtering certain proteins and letting them pass through, or is it uh, is it like a physical breach in some of the filtration mechanisms? Like what what happens to cause that? So uh, we don't understand completely how that filtration barrier is disrupted. Uh, normally, proteins are not excreted in the urine or very small amounts of very specific types of protein are excreted in the urine. But any protein that is present in the blood will be retained by the filtration barrier into the bloodstream and will not be allowed to come out of the urine. When there is a, a breach in that structural integrity of the filtration barrier, uh, and that could be because of either physical disruption or because what we call alteration in the charge of the glomerular basement membrane. Uh, that leads to leakage of uh, uh, some types of protein in the urine. And that protein is typically albumin. So we will see in the early stages of kidney disease appearance of small amounts of albumin in the urine. And if not addressed uh, at, that, at that time, uh, the amount of albumin coming out in the urine will go up over uh, over time, and uh, you know, uh, in some diseases, people will start losing a whole lot of protein. Uh, alongside, if not addressed, uh, the filtration function of the kidney will also start to come down, and the glomerular filtration rate, which, uh, as I said, is uh, is estimated by the serum creatinine measurement will also start to come down. How do you know that your kidneys aren't filtering properly? Will you see like visible changes in your urine or will it hurt to pee or will you have a very low or high urine volume? Like what will you notice if anything? Right. So there is no, uh, no single way of telling this. Uh, the first thing to say again, as I said in the beginning, is that in most instances, you will not notice anything or any change in uh, your urine to indicate uh, if you have kidney disease or not. But in some instances, and in highly observant people, they might notice something. For example, they are uh, passing urine more frequently, especially at night, uh, which could be because the kidneys are not able to concentrate urine properly. Uh, other people might notice uh, appearance of, uh, of uh, uh, increased amount of froth in the urine, uh, which happens because the protein is uh, coming out in the urine. Uh, which leads to generation of froth in the urine. In rare type of kidney diseases, uh, one can see com blood coming out in the kidneys. Uh, you know, like you said, there might be pain during the passage of urine, again, in, in very, very small number of kidney diseases. So people should report any kind of abnormality that they see uh, in uh, either uh, the frequency of urine uh, passage, uh, if it is, especially if it is persistent. Uh, we all can have this in a physiological manner uh, because of uh, uh, unique situations. For example, lack of access to water. If, if we, we don't have access to sufficient water uh, and if the kidneys are forced to concentrate urine in an extreme manner, that itself can produce some degree of pain while passing urine uh, because the concentrated urine uh, does produce a little bit of that. But then that should go away once we regain access to water. So uh, we should be uh, careful uh, of not immediately jumping to conclusions, uh, but certainly noting any symptom and seeing if they are persistent. So do you believe it may be damaging to be in a chronically dehydrated state? Does that put stress on your kidneys? Yes, it is indeed. So now we know that people who are 
chronically dehydrated, for example, uh, people who work outdoors for long hours in hot and humid conditions, uh, being exposed to heat stress uh, can develop chronic disease over time. Uh, in fact, this, uh, this is now called heat stress nephropathy and has been uh, shown to be responsible for kidney disease in agricultural communities in uh, some uh, rural areas of low and low middle income countries, for example, in Central America, uh, in uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, parts of Middle East, etc. So that's that's an important cause. And this might be, and this is uh, why this this is worth noting, is that as uh, we po- progress through climate change, uh, this might start affecting more and more people in the world, uh, even in areas where this is not a problem a- as of now. Makes sense. Okay. So what uh, particular, are you focused more on chronic conditions or an acute? And then within that, what's your uh, your focus of your research and your work? Right. So uh, my research has been in, in uh, all types of kidney disease, but from a population health perspective, chronic kidney disease is is perhaps uh, more, more applicable to global population health. According to most recent estimates, uh, around 850 million people around the world have some type of kidney disease. Most of them have chronic kidney disease. Uh, I would say m- more than 80% of these people have chronic kidney disease. And so it is an important public health problem for us to uh, identify chronic kidney disease early and make sure that we put in place measures that can prevent, uh, prevent the progression of this disease. Why this is the case is because uh, chronic kidney disease, if not checked, uh, uh, you know, in time, uh, can mm-hmm. first of all lead to kidney failure, uh, which requires treatment with dialysis or kidney transplantation, which is extremely expensive. Uh, it's one of the most expensive chronic therapies in the world. Uh, so healthcare systems end up spending a huge amount of money on treating people uh, with advanced kidney failure, giving them dialysis, making sure that they get transplanted. The second is that even those who have not yet reached the stage of getting di- requiring dialysis or, or or a kidney transplant are at extremely increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. So even though they haven't reached that stage, they are likely to die uh, by developing a heart attack or a stroke or a peripheral vascular disease, which again, uh, not only uh, is a cause of death and disability, but also uh, extremely expensive to manage, uh, you know, uh, at a population level. So that's well, why... Why would, um, why would kidney disease uh, contribute or is it just coincident or comorbid with uh, with heart disease? Well, in some cases, it could be comorbid, but in a huge uh, majority of individuals, it is directly uh, causal. In fact, of accelerated cardiovascular disease, it has what now do you think been. That is? So there, are, the, there is there are complex linkages between the function of the heart and the kidney, and the study of what is called cardiorenal or renocardiac uh, connection is has become a field in itself. It's not very well understood, but then there are a number of uh, hormones uh, that act on both the organs and uh, one, uh, the abnormality of one can affect uh, the levels uh, leading to abnormality in the other. Uh, the change in volume status uh, because of function of the kid- abnormalities in the function of the kidneys can affect the function of the heart. Uh, abnormality in heart function can, uh, can lead to reduced uh, uh, blood flow to the kidney, which can affect the function of the kidneys. So both of them uh, affect each other in, you know, uh, uh, if diseased, uh, but the, uh, the high 
rate of development of cardiovascular disease in people with chronic kidney disease is extremely well documented now. Do you think that, um, you know, as kidneys get damaged and diseased, you, you believe that it may cause a back pressure on the circulating blood? Maybe there's a slowing or, again, there's a more resistance to the filtration. Maybe there's clogging of the, you know, glomerulus or the, you know, the nephrons. And maybe there's a back pressure that increases overall blood pressure. Is that possible? Well, you can, you can try to understand it that way. Uh, so there is no physical back pressure as, uh, you know, just because the kidneys are getting clogged or the nephrons are getting clogged. But like I said, when the kidneys are not uh, appropriately filtering out the salt and water, that salt and water uh, gets retained in the blood circulation, right? And so that does indeed cause a form of back pressure, as you might say, and puts increased load over the heart. People with kidney disease, when uh, that blood can no longer stay in the circulatory systems, which means the blood vessels, it can even leak out into, into the tissue spaces. And people with kidney disease can develop swellings uh, all over their body, starting from feet to you know, other parts of the body and face and so on. And people with very severe kidney disease, if they are not receiving appropriate treatment, can become severely uh, volume overloaded or swollen up. Hmm. Okay. Um, diabetes specifically or high blood pressure, I mean, sorry, high blood sugar chronically, what does that eventually lead to? Does that lead to like end stage renal disease or does it lead more predominantly to, you know, just complete kidney failure? Like what, um, you know, if you look at diabetes in particular, what, what does it tend to do over time? Yeah, diabetes is a really bad disease to have in the sense that it affects so many organs of the body. So the primary effect of diabetes is, uh, I shouldn't say primary effect, but one of the important effects of diabetes is on the vascular system. So involvement of the kidneys in diabetes is uh, classified under one of the microvascular complications of diabetes. So involvement of small blood vessels. Diabetes can also involve large blood vessels, uh, which are you know, lumped under macrovascular complications. So the microvascular complications typically include uh, involvement of the kidneys in, and, and abnormalities in the eye. So people in diabetes will develop uh, changes, uh, vascular changes in their retina, which is one of the layers of the eye. And uh, because of that can develop uh, leakage of blood in their retina. There is you know, uh, adverse effect on the vision. And at the same time, uh, the microvascular system of the kidneys is, also gets affected. Uh, as I said before, uh, the glomerulus uh, gets affected, leading to leakage of uh, protein in the urine. And then over time, other components of the kidney parenchyma also get affected. Uh, if not appropriately managed, uh, I have to emphasize here is that now we do have interventions, effective interventions that can slow down and in some cases even reverse uh, the progression of kidney disease in people with diabetes. Uh, more new drugs are being added every year. So, but if, if that doesn't happen, then people will slowly continue to lose kidney function and develop what you call end-stage kidney disease. And uh, we are now calling end-stage kidney disease as kidney failure. So both, are, both of them are uh, synonyms. Um, when, when someone experiences kidney failure, what happens? Is it just that there's a complete lack of filtration or are there certain thresholds? Like is there a breakthrough amount of protein in the urine? Or like, how do you know someone's in kidney failure? Yeah, so kidney failure is uh, determined by a measurement of glomerular filtration rate, which I, uh, which I, uh, as I described before, is estimated by measuring serum creatinine in the urine. So there is a formula that 
uh, you can plug your serum creatinine value in and determining uh, the, the glomerular filtration rate from that is really very easy. It can be done on, uh, on, on a cell phone. Uh, so the normal uh, glomerular filtration rate is about uh, between 90 and 120 milliliter per minute per meter square, as we say. Uh, so that's, let's say, 100% 100 of kidney function. Over time, in people with chronic kidney disease, this will go down. And uh, there is a staging of kidney disease, which, which, is, which is defined by different glomerular filtration rate thresholds. Uh, the final stage, which is called stage 5 of chronic kidney disease, is determined when the glomerular filtration rate comes down to about 15 milliliters per minute per uh, 1.73 meters square of body surface area. So it is almost 10% of the original uh, kidney function, which if you remember, I, I, I said was between 100 and 120, right? Uh, but it is not that everyone will require uh, dialysis uh, at a glomerular filtration rate of 15. Uh, many people have different levels of tolerance to this condition, which we call eudemia. Uh, so uh, many people can go on to tolerate glomerular filtration rate as low as five. So at some stage, they will start developing symptoms. And those symptoms would be uh, anemia, which we talked about earlier. Uh, they would be gradual uh, progressive weakness, uh, people's inability to just carry out their normal function. Uh, they may develop cognitive uh, abnormalities. Uh, they are unable to excrete the acid load that the body produces. So their blood may become acidotic and that produces abnormalities. Other Solutes will accumulate in the body, for example, potassium, which is, uh, which if uh, accumulating in the, uh, in, in the blood in, in large amounts can uh, adversely affect the function of the heart. Then there are a number of other uh, toxins that accumulate in the body, which can lead to obtundation of uh, the neurological status of the individual, even leading on to uh, you know, development of seizures and development of coma. Those are really extreme forms of kidney disease, which uh, we don't think people should, um, you know, need to necessarily be in before they're considered for treatment, but it can happen in rare instances when, when people don't have access to medical care. Uh, in addition to that, like I said, uh, uh, kidney and other functions, it can lead to deterioration in bone health. Uh, it can lead to cardiovascular diseases, accelerated problems, and so on. When, when people get kidney disease, um, does it appear to affect both kidneys at the same rate, or does one preferentially become more diseased than the other? Like, you know, like there's left and right-handed people. Are there like left and right kidney people, or one kidney is more dominant for some reason? No, that that's not the case. When whenever there is a systemic disease that affects kidneys, it will usually affect both the kidneys at the same time and uh, in the same manner to the same degree. One kidney can be affected more than the other when there is some kind of structural problem with the kidneys. For example, if uh, the blood vessels supplying blood to one of the kidneys gets affected because of a disease or, uh, or injury or something, or if there is a stone in one of the two kidneys, then that kidney will become uh, particularly involved. Or there is some sort of developmental abnormality in one of the kidneys uh, which means because of congenital reasons, there is uh, some physical defect in, in one of the kidneys or the urinary system that drains urine from that specific kidneys. So those are a few situations when uh, one kidney can be disproportionately affected, but otherwise almost all medical conditions will affect both the kidneys to the same extent. Hmm. Okay. 
And then uh, when someone goes through dialysis, how effective is it? I've heard it's it's not nearly effective as uh, you know regular kidney filtration. And if so, what's lacking? Right. So, like I said, our kidneys are functioning twenty four seven every single minute since the time we are born till the minute we we die. The kidneys are functioning. Uh, uh, they are not just filtering urine, but they are also doing a number of functions. Some of which we spoke about, but then there are a few other functions as well. Now, when someone is put on dialysis, dialysis typically re- replaces only the filtration function of the kidneys. That's the first thing. So the other functions are not replaced at all by dialysis. And we need to continue to provide medical me- management for those other functions, uh, like treatment of anemia, bone maintain- maintenance of bone health, making sure that uh, the acid excretion, etc., is managed, and so on. Uh, the process of dialysis, uh, there are two types of dialysis, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. People are more familiar with hemodialysis, which is typically done in a dialysis center. Uh, This patient with kidney failure will go to a dialysis center typically three times a week and be on a dialysis machine for four hours uh, in each session, right? Uh, So the first thing is uh, is that this is uh, very different from the uh, continuous function of the kidney. So this is intermittent. Uh, this is not continuous. So in between dialysis, uh, the person is actually accumulating all the you know, bad things that the kidneys would normally excrete. Uh, the second is despite uh, uh, an effective dialysis, which is, uh, which is, you know, reason, which goes a reasonably good way in putting uh, someone to, uh, uh, to good health. Uh, this health is, this does not entirely replace even the normal filtration function of the kidneys. Uh, so it, it it's, uh, it's less efficient, but enough to uh, to put someone in, in in a reasonably good health. So, I guess uh, what you're the... doing is is every day that you're not in dialysis, you're accumulating stress and strain on your all your systems, and then there's a sudden release when you do the dialysis, and then it builds up again. So, I guess this would create like a chronic strain pattern that would probably hasten the uh, you know your whole. I mean, I guess your demise. You know. It would strain every body system. Right. So it is, uh, if you, if the, uh, if a person with kidney failure was not on dialysis, they will pass away very quickly. Uh, yeah. By being on dialysis, of course, they, uh, they, they avoid that. But like you say, it, it does, uh, this intermittent nature of the disease uh, has uh, the kind of uh, phenomenon that you described. And this does not restore full health of anyone. Uh, so people on dialysis are at a hugely increased risk of death, no matter how effective the dialysis uh, procedure itself is because of the uh, because of the reasons that you described and a number of other reasons as well. Hmm. So what, uh, how are you hoping to influence policy or influence treatment with your research? What's your goal? Yeah. So that's that's our goal. Uh, and I current, I'm the current president of the International Society of Nephrology. Uh, hmm. which is really dedicated towards improvement of kidney health, uh, especially in disadvantaged populations worldwide. Uh, this we can do only by uh, by making sure that everyone understands the value of this. And so policy needs to change. Uh, eventual uh, provision of healthcare, no, whether it is kidney health or any other type of health, really is influenced by how, how governments uh, take care of their citizens. Uh, which requires policy change. Uh, so we are uh, using uh, our evidence, uh, both at um, local level, but also at regional level, at global level, 
by putting together research uh, findings from around the world, uh, highlighting the burden of disease, but also highlighting that uh, just because there is a burden doesn't mean we need to be despondent. Uh, we do know how to treat these diseases, uh, how to treat these different types of kidney diseases. The real challenge is to take this knowledge that we have with us to the people who need them, uh, especially people who live in low resource settings. And uh, I have to remind you that low resource settings exist not just in poor countries, they also exist in rich countries. So mm. people are uh, from indigenous communities, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, in some societies, women, children, elderly, uh, etc. They, they are all uh, disadvantaged depending on where they live. So the greatest challenge to health systems and, uh, you know, as, as, as a kidney disease community for us is to, is to take the effective treatments that we have, that research has already identified and make sure that those effective treatments are actually made available in a sustainable affordable and scalable way to everyone who needs them, no matter where they live, uh, you know, what their socioeconomic status is, what communities they belong to, uh, you know, and, and whether they have access to good quality healthcare otherwise or not. So that's the biggest challenge. And for that, mm. we, we are working with, uh, uh, with uh, the communities, which includes uh, you know, civil societies, uh, kidney patients in, themselves. I think they are one of the biggest advocates uh, of uh, uh, of making sure that policy policy change takes place, we are working with uh, uh, professionals from other uh, organizations because uh, it's not like kidney health can be provided in uh, in a silo or in a vertical manner. It needs to be provided or or you know integrated into an overall healthcare provision, which includes uh, a holistic healthcare uh, response. So uh, as uh, uh, the global health community recognizes we need to provide a whole of system and a whole of society approach uh, to taking care of these problems, which is what we are advocating, uh, not by creating a kidney lobby, but by making sure uh, that uh, you know, all, all of these systems are addressed in, in an equitable manner uh, to reach everyone who needs them. Uh, are, there, are there any uh, cultural practices or foods that are particularly damaging to kidneys or cause kidney disease? Yeah, so there are some cultural practices, uh, uh, especially in traditional societies. And it may again be a reflection of the deprivation that they live in. Uh, some of these cultural practices are related to consumption of certain types of food. Uh, and in some instances, they can be toxic to the kidneys. Uh, in other instances, they are related to uh, consumption of herbal medicines or indigenous medicines. This often happens because uh, people are poor. They don't have the ability to access sometimes expensive, uh, you know, modern medical care. Uh, they, uh, they find it easy to go to the local exorcist or faith healer uh, or practitioner of a local system of medicine who lives in their village or in a neighboring uh, community. Uh, they you know, often dispense uh, kind of treatment, some of which might be toxic to the kidneys. Even if it is not toxic to kidneys, it doesn't certainly help uh, improve kidney disease in a way that a modern medical system will do. Uh, the third situation is when people are uh, exposing themselves to uh, harmful surroundings, as I described, you know, exposing themselves to hot and humid environment and so on and so forth. Uh, 
Yeah. So that you know, in terms of the specific question about food, so there are certain types of uh, leaves, certain types of uh, fruits which are uh, which are sometimes consumed, not very commonly, but but rarely by people living in uh, remote tropical areas where they are uh, often unable to identify a toxic uh, fruit from a, a non-toxic fruit. There are certain types of mushrooms. Uh, that can be toxic to the kidneys, and if people don't uh, identify the toxic and uh, toxic one and differentiate it from not not toxic mushrooms, they can consume that and develop kidney failure. Mm. Well, very good, Vivek. What's the best way for people to learn more about your work and about the initiatives of the uh, you know the international organization you you run? The International Society of Nephrology has a website. Um, it's www. Uh, the ISN, T-H-E-I-S-N dot O-R-G. It has a lot of resources. Uh, there are other professional societies also that have resources uh, for people to learn about kidney diseases. There are kidney professional, uh, kidney patient organizations in different countries, including in the United States, in, in UK, in Canada, in Australia. Uh, you can Google those websites and you can find information. Now, in terms of our research, uh, our research is available at the website of uh, the George Institute for Global Health, where I work, and uh, the URL for that is www.thegeorgeinstitute.org.in. So we uh, regularly not only uh, publish our own research, we identify uh, relevant research from anywhere in the world, uh, which can help change policy and improve the health of people with kidney disease worldwide. Uh, we make it available. We often uh, will disseminate our research through social media and disseminate important policy uh, findings that might have uh, been you know, developed anywhere in the world but could be useful for general good. Well, very good. Well, Vivek, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rich, for inviting me, and uh, I hope that uh, listeners will find this information useful. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.